Hi, my name is Dominique Callens, and I'm one of the small group leaders at Gateway Community Church. Today is Palm Sunday. In a few moments, Pastor Ed will be referencing that, but he's actually going to be focusing on an incident that happened in the middle of the week, two or three days after Palm Sunday. A reading from Mark 12, 1 through 12. He began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented, rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit from the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others, some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and he will kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read the scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then they looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable about them and they were afraid of the crowd. So they left him and went away. I'm sure you've seen the cartoons and memes on various uh, social media platforms like I have. I saw a great one this week, especially for you dog lovers. A guy is sitting on a couch and he's wearing one of those dog cones and his dog is sitting beside him looking boss. And the dog says to him, it's for your own good. You have to stop touching your face. Well, we have a sober word for this Palm Sunday morning but it's for our own good. So we're going to continue our series on the autobiography of God, and we've been talking about what God is really like. And here's our forming, our foundational thesis for the whole series. God essentially wrote out his character and his nature through the life and stories of Jesus. In other words, Jesus was the autobiography of God. His stories and his interactions with others Show us what God is really like. So today we're going to look at one of Jesus' stories, the story that Dominique read for us. And through this particular story, Jesus communicated a critically important characteristic of God. And I think it's an important characteristic for us to remember, even in the current climate that we're living in. But before we roll out the characteristic, let's look at the context which led to the story to help us understand it better. We back up a little bit. There's an incident recorded for us in Luke chapter 13, verse 34. Luke records that Jesus cried over Jerusalem. Uh, he was heartbroken because those who should have been able to understand his ministry and his teaching missed it completely. And this rejection was a steady feature throughout Jesus's whole ministry. Everywhere he went, he faced opposition from the religious establishment honestly, from people like me, religious professionals. These were people who knew the Old Testament and they should have been able to recognize the signs 
of Jesus's ministry, the signs surrounding his ministry, but they didn't recognize it and they constantly criticized him, constantly tested him. So he mourned. Now, sometime after he mourned over Jerusalem, Jesus went there to observe the Passover. Again, I'm setting up the story that Dominique read for us this morning and this uh, important characteristic of God. So during that time, Jerusalem was flush with people. Imagine Disney World having some religious celebration over the Christmas season. It was kind of like that. Jews from all over Israel and beyond came to Jerusalem to celebrate their highest and holiest holiday. And Romans would have been there in force to ensure you know, their version of stability. Now, certainly many of the people who were there would have been from Galilee. And Galilee was several days, four, five, six days walk north of Jerusalem. Galileans would have been very familiar with Jesus's ministry, either by having seen him personally or having heard accounts about him. And he had a stellar reputation mostly among this crowd. Many of the people would have been from southern Israel in and around Jerusalem and that area. And they would have heard much less about Jesus and probably not had any direct exposure to him. They would have still heard of him, but it would have been mixed. Still, there would have been curiosity even among that group. The week before his death, he entered the city. Now, this was a chaotic and exciting scene. He approached with his disciples from the east out of Bethany through Bethphage. Then they went down the Mount of Olives, across the Kidron Valley, up on the other side into the east gate, into Jerusalem, and eventually up to the Temple Mount. Crowds gathered to walk with him and to welcome him, including, no doubt, many curious onlookers. And can't you imagine those conversations? Who is this guy? Oh, you know, I think that's Jesus of, of Nazareth. Some claim that he's the Messiah. Oh, oh, I was wondering if he would be here. I've heard about him. The crowds also included many admirers and followers. And this group, spontaneously grabbed blankets and palm branches and they began waving them and sang one of the choruses from Psalm 118, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The biographies of Matthew, Mark, and Luke indicate that when he entered in Jerusalem, he went straight up into the temple area and that began a week of drama and conflict. By Tuesday of that week, that's probably the day for the story that Dominique read for us. By Tuesday, the conflict between Jesus and the religious establishment was fever pitched. And by Wednesday, they had concocted a plan for how to kill him. So probably on Tuesday, Jesus tells the story recorded in Mark chapter 12. And through this story, we learn something very, very important about God. And here it is. God is patient. The Bible repeatedly reminds us that God is slow to anger. Exodus 34, 6, Numbers 14, 18, Nehemiah 9, 17, Psalm 86, 15, Nahum 1, 3, just to name a few. God is patient. I think uh, Pastor A.W. Pink was onto something when he defined God's patience as, quote, a restraint placed upon his acts by his will a restraint placed upon his acts by his will. Stephen Charnock was a Puritan pastor centuries ago who said this. I'm going to quote him 
quote, men that are great in the world are quick in passion and are not so ready to forgive an injury or bear with an offender as one of a humbler rank. It is a want of power over that man's self that makes him do unbecoming things upon provocation. A prince that can bridle his passions is a king over himself as well as over his subjects. He adds, God is slow to anger because he is great in power. He has no less power over himself than over his creatures. I love that idea. God is awesome in holiness, great in his passions, perfect in justice, and yet he forbears, he forgives, he waits in patience. He does not act on his holiness and his passion immediately, but because of his great power, even over himself, he refrains and allows time for us to change. God is patient. And God's patience is seen throughout the story of his interaction with his people. As long as people have tried to relate to God, they have done so faultingly in fits and starts. At one point, faithful, and then the next minute, forgetting God altogether. We pray with faith one day, and the next day we ignore God completely. We throw ourselves on his mercy in one moment, and then we wonder if he even exists in the next. God is patient, and we are the beneficiaries of that patience. Now, the story. Jesus sets his story in a vineyard. This would have been a very familiar setting to all of his listeners and to many of you wine samplers out there. And this is actually very important because Israel often compared itself to a vineyard. So think about that. You know how countries and cultures have national symbols. These are objects or places or even ideas that represent the culture in some way. Like Italy has the uh, leaning tower of Pisa or the shape of the boot. India has the Bengal tiger or the Ganges River. America has the eagle or the Liberty Bell. Well, Israel often imagined a vineyard when it talked about itself and when it thought about itself. So Jesus is sending a clear signal in this story. Hey, I'm talking about you, by the way. A man planted a vineyard, he says. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. So uh, the wine press suggests that this man intends for the vineyard to be fruitful. He's going to make wine. And the watchtower suggests that he's going to protect it. He's going to guard over it, keep it safe from predators. Then Jesus goes on. Then he rented the man with the vineyard. He rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of his vineyard. But they seized him. They seized the servant, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. This is the story of Israel's history. This is the story of God's dealing with all of us, frankly, but let's focus on them. It's more fun. So repeatedly, God tried to get their attention, but they would forget God. God would send prophets. They would pursue religions of, other, of their neighbors. God would send preachers. 
They would grow wealthy and self-reliant and forget to take care of the needy among them. God would send an invading army to stir up their dependence on him. Over and over and over and over again, the pattern is repeated. Moses had warned them about exactly this kind of thing in the book of Deuteronomy, what you should do, what you shouldn't do, and what God will do in each case. And this becomes so typical of them that scholars have given it a name. They claim that the rest of Israel's history after Moses can be characterized as a Deuteronomic cycle, which just repeats itself. That's a fancy way of saying that they repeatedly turned their backs on God and God in his patience repeatedly nudged them back to himself. God is patient. A few weeks ago in this series of conversations about the autobiography of God, we talked about God's unlimited power. And we made the observation that if unlimited power acts randomly and capriciously, it's frightening to the extreme. And that's the way many ancient peoples thought about God or the gods. But if unlimited power is tethered to unlimited love, then that's awesome to behold and to experience. And one of the fruits of that marriage between unlimited power and unlimited love is patience. God is patient. But we learn something else equally important from Jesus' story. God is patient to a point. Unlike his power and his love, his patience is not unlimited. Eventually, it runs out. He had one left to send the vineyard owner, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all saying, they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? Jesus asks. He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Without question, Jesus said something about himself here, something very profound and something a little bit arrogant, unless it's true. And I believe it is true. I believe God has sent his son, Jesus of Nazareth, to awaken us, to call us to himself, to stir up the vineyard and to make it fruitful again. That ultimately is the point of Jesus' story. God has been patient, repeatedly patient, but now God has sent his son. That son is me. Will you ignore me? Will you ignore God yet again? God is patient, but with limits. That's the point. So what does all this have to do with us? Well, God is still in the patience business. God still exercises himself patiently toward us, restraining his acts of holiness and justice by his powerful will in order to show patience toward us, waiting for us to respond to him in faith and trust. I'm going to say that again. God still exercises himself patiently toward us, restraining his acts of holiness and justice by his powerful will in order to show patience toward us, waiting for us to respond to him in faith and trust. Even now, I believe that's what God is doing with our culture. Look, most of you who are watching this are old enough to remember 9-11 vividly. By the way, my children still complain that Diane and I were the only parents who didn't come pick their kids up from school. Every time 9-11 comes up, one of them will say, it's like you didn't even care about us. I think they're just trying to make us feel guilty. Anyway, if you remember 9-11, you probably remember the conversations about how this would change us culturally. 
more people were going to be more interested in spiritual things. This was going to reorient our focus onto things that really mattered because after 9-11, we knew, right? We knew we weren't invulnerable. Of course, we knew it before, but after 9-11, we really knew and we were never going to forget. We knew that the superficial exigencies of our lives, that's not what's most important, right? All of us, we knew that in a new way, it had changed us for, and it did, for about a month. And then, back to normal. So imagine for a minute that God was somehow involved in all of that, allowing that for his purposes, and he was. What must he have been thinking? I mean, didn't you have the feeling that 9-11 was a wake-up call? It was like a, a phone alarm going off while we were asleep on the couch. Well, if 9-11 was a phone alarm, then the coronavirus is a fire truck in our living room. And how will we respond? You know, I got an email a couple of weeks ago from someone who was very disturbed, and understandably so, by that documentary on Netflix about Gabriel Hernandez. Why would God allow that to happen? They asked. And honestly, I don't have a great answer for that. Uh, the whole idea of suffering is thorny for all of us. Let's be honest. We often don't get answers for our suffering. More problematic for me personally, and I'm just being honest here, is the way Jesus dealt with that question. He had an opportunity to answer this question for us and he didn't really. I mean, he answered so many questions about God, about relating to God, about life, about relating to one another. That's why we're doing this series. But Luke 13, 1 through 6, records a profound exchange for us that I want to read for you. Luke 13, 1 through 6. Now, there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And this, by the way, we know historically is the, exactly the horrific kind of thing that Pilate would do. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. So why did this happen, Jesus? Well, not because they did anything wrong, but you better be right with God because the same thing could happen to you. I don't know, but to me, this sounds decidedly more Old Testament than we usually think of Jesus as being. Listen, God did not cause 9-11. That was caused by misinformed and deluded people acting in the name of evil. And God has not caused the coronavirus. It was caused by life on a planet that plays host to some things that are deadly to us. But God allows these things to happen. And he uses them for his purposes. He uses them to stir us into action, to bring us to our knees, to break apart our pride and our self-reliance. I think I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, my favorite cartoon of all the ones that I've seen in coronavirus era is the one of an introverted guy. It's labeled the introvert. And I, I can't remember. I think he's sitting on a couch and there's a bubble coming out of his head and it says, 
got to keep your social distance, got to be away from people, stay at home all by yourself. And then breathlessly, he says, I've been preparing for this my whole life. Well, let's do a survey of our current situation. And let's remember that those of us who are Christ followers have been preparing for this as long as we have known him. Most of us are stuck at home with dramatically reduced schedules. Baseball practice and after-school activities are gone. We're cooking at home and eating more meals as a family. Our commute times are reduced and we're spending more time with the kids. We're taking walks. We're connecting with family and old friends through Zoom and FaceTime. What an opportunity. Of course, there's a specter hanging over everything, but God has interrupted our schedules. Will he get our attention? If they haven't listened to the message of the servants, and if they don't listen to the message of the son, what then will the owner of the vineyard do? A couple of weeks ago, I talked about stepping up our devotional game. How are you doing? Are you really readjusting? Are you trying to do life differently? Are you reorienting, redirecting, repenting? He's trying to get our attention. God is patient within limits. Let's pray. Father, this is a sobering truth. Honestly, we're living in sobering times, but Lord, you've given us such an opportunity to hear your voice in a new way, to lean into you in a new way, perhaps for some of us to discover you. Jesus, please help us not to miss the fire truck in our living rooms. God, I shudder to think of what would come next. In Jesus' name, amen.